Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about choosing an unconventional niche. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> want to talk about this. Yeah. So this is triggered by one of Rochelle's fancy new daily emails. <laughs> That's I'm a whole other story. Loving that. The premise of the email was that there's an astonishing ar- array of things that you can choose to build your authority on. And it's certainly something I talk about a lot. I'm not sure how much we've talked about it on the show, but I'm sure we have. And the the basic concept is that when you're basically a click away from the entire Earth's population, it really does pay to niche way down and kind of own a space, be the expert at something that would have seemed preposterously small to maybe to people my age, certainly, that grew up in a time where you had to go to the mall and if it wasn't in the mall, like you weren't getting it. Like it, you know, mail order like that didn't really have it existed. But I mean, now when you've got Amazon and Target and Walmart and eBay and all of these things available, you know, two day, you know, less than two day delivery, it's kind of like, okay, well, if I can get everything, I can get all the kind of Procter and Gamble average stuff even not so average stuff, but still there's like tons of stuff. There's not, that's not really a problem. It's like crazy how specific you can get and still reach a market that's big enough to support you. And when you're talking about a service business, typically you don't need that many clients per year to be doing very well. So you sent out this email that had a giant list of (laughs) hilarious it made me laugh. Like some of the things sound so specific, it's impossible to imagine. It's, it's hard to imagine that they could be making a living off of it. But I know it's true that you can. So like just to pick a couple of random things from the list. Um, oh, yeah. Like e- the tiny EKGs, house architecture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. EKGs for sales teams. <laughs> uh, golf rehab. I think that's like you throw out your shoulder from golfing or you injure something on the course. I like Native American cuisine. I thought that was really interesting. I know nothing about that. I thought, oh, that's fascinating. I'd like to know more about that. Or how to pilot a hot air balloon. <laughs> right. Like, I might right. need to know that. And the, the list goes on and on. Yeah. I mean, there's so <laughs> many. But and you might think, well, that's, you know, maybe that's just them trying something and it's it's working or it's not working. But recently there was an article, I think it was in The Guardian, about this new wave of retailers. And obviously, you know, there's a difference between running a retail store and, and running a service business. But the uh, story focused on a couple of different businesses that seem preposterously small, but have been in business for a long time. They have lots of employees. They seem to be doing fine. And one of them was like a pet store that just sells ants. Here's the thing about it though. I mean, it made me laugh when I, I was like, come on. And that wasn't even the most, that wasn't even the most specific store. There's another one that just sold stuffed animals shaped like meat. But this ant one was wild because they had pictures of it. And you're like, okay, if you think of a pet store, a picture comes to my mind. This isn't what that looked like. This was for ants and it was organized to be like an ant experience. It was like an ant museum <laughs> or something. So you and buy ants like as pets? I thought maybe they were feeding them to something like no, I don't no, know. like ant farms. Oh, okay. Okay. And yeah, and the, it was hilarious. The guy the guy had like a chip on his shoulder about goldfish and I mean he was like 
it would, yeah, sure, you can get a goldfish and just watch it swim back and forth. But wouldn't it be way cooler to watch these like leafcutter ants cut through this orchid? And like, it's like, wow, like I was starting to get interested. And that's kind of the point. When you do get really specific down into an area, it opens up. So like Philip Morgan, who's a sort of a guru on specialization, he talks about the surface area of a specialty is the same as generalist. It's just deep. So it's like, it's like instead of going one inch deep, you know, in a real broad way, like think of a gigantic shallow puddle or a shallow lake, you go straight down a rabbit hole. And then inside that, it just goes on forever down the rabbit hole. It's like just as much surface area. It's just a different direction. And there's arguments about over specializing or, you know, generalists or generalists can create innovations by connecting dots between two disparate industries. So like that aside, I really think that that specializing is a great way to build your authority. Let's say accelerate. Yeah, it's it's a lot easier to build your authority if you're if you're picking a niche that you can command. Mm-hmm. Right. But Ant I know, stores are probably one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or just sell pins from the eighties. Like that's a a business that's been around for ten years. So the thing is. I get a lot of pushback when I suggest this to people because they immediately think a couple different things. One is that uh, they don't know what to pick. So they'll say, well, I could arbitrarily pick, what do I do? I make websites for people and I do, I do online stuff for people. I make websites, I do front end, I do back end, I, do, I uh, show people how to set up email marketing automation. And I do all of this stuff and I can do it for a plastics manufacturer just as well as I can do it for a pet store or for an independent consultant. So why would I, why would I specialize? To me, that's kind of like the ant store. It's like, well, until you do it, you don't know how it's different than a general pet store. Once you do it, then you think, okay, if I just have ants in here, I can change the whole way the whole place is set up. So when you start to specialize on, say, let's just say you do e-commerce websites for golfers, it's going to change many things about how you do business and it's going to change everything about your marketing. Every Everything about your oh, marketing is going to change. Yeah, because we want specialists and we want people who understand our problems. And I was thinking about in your example, I don't want to hire that guy. It's like, so what? Like, do you understand my industry? Do you understand my business? Do you understand the interplay between offline and online? How important are these things? I mean, and if you imagine that he was developing content or she um, developing content for their client base, what are you going to write about? I just feel like they're not going to grab me. They don't have the opportunity to grab me as a, as a potential client. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we're focused on like someone who's uh, a tech person who's going to specialize in, what did I say, golfers, there's all sorts of real world situations where this kind of rubber meets the road, where digital meets physical, meet space and digital space or cyberspace that are unique to, say, a golf pro or somebody that manages a, a club. Or maybe there's some app that's specific to golfers that would be of interest. Or like there's all these things. If you start to go deep, deep, deep into a particular area, you're going to find out more and more of their specific problems and challenges and opportunities and the things that are changing in their industry and who's spending money on what. And all of a sudden, you can start thinking less about tech. I mean, tech is still your area of expertise in this example, but you can think more about their business and get into the value of what it is that you'd be delivering to them and not just 
be saying, oh, well, best practice is buttons should be 44 pixels high on a phone so that they're big enough for your finger. And it's like, (laughs) best practices only get you so far. Yeah, you need to solve problems. The easiest way to solve problems is is to focus on some aspect of who you're serving and figure out how you can tackle, how your expertise can tackle that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you look no further than doctors for an example of this working. I, I guarantee you, so we have a friend who's a hand surgeon, a well-known hand surgeon, and I've got my GP, you know, general practitioner. And uh, let me tell you, the hand surgeon drives a lot nicer car. <laughs> not, to be, <laughs> not to be tacky or crass about it, but the hand surgeon is a very, very wealthy individual. And there's like a big book of hand surgery. He's an editor on the book. Like this guy's not bored. I'm sort of segueing into another objection, which is that people are like, well, I don't know what to pick. And then another thing is I'll get bored doing the same thing for the same people all the time. And that is just, that doesn't even pass the sniff test. Like if you look around at, at anybody, almost anybody who does a Ted talk is a hyper specialized in some space and they don't look bored to me. That's the challenge. I mean, it's easier to say, well, I don't want to pick a niche because I'll be bored, but you have to start somewhere. So you start and you pick something that's intriguing to you. Like what gets you excited? What problems do you want to solve? I've had clients where they were really good at at big strategy things, and then they wind up focusing on detailed execution and they go insane. But when they pick a different kind of a niche that allows them to do this big picture strategy work that they're great at, all of a sudden they're flourishing and, gee, I'm not bored. And and I feel good at the end of the day instead of wanting to put a drill bit through my head. <laughs> we shouldn't talk about Tarantino before recording. <laughs> That's true. Thank you. I had Tarantino on the mind. <laughs> exactly. I'm a big fan of this, but I know that it triggers the uh, positioning fear reflex, as Philip calls it, uh, because of these different reasons. People are like paralyzed by the idea of, of they think, oh, I'll never make, there'll never be enough clients to make enough money. I'll be bored. Uh, I don't know what to pick. I'll pick the wrong thing. I'll regret the choice. Uh, I don't want to pigeonhole myself. As Blair N says, well, guess what? Pigeonholes are stuffed with money. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> If you pigeonhole yourself, it's actually a pretty good thing. It's true. And, you know, I'm wondering if we should talk about something we were talking about before the show. Jonathan had this idea. We were talking about these different shops. And go ahead, Jonathan. I think it's just interesting to talk about. And we can apply it to consulting or software development. There's a fellow named Joseph Pine who is well known for The Experience Economy. I think is the name of his book. And he wrote another book called Authenticity. I read something that just blew my mind when I read it. He was like, customers don't want choice. And I was like, they don't want choice. Of course they want choice. And he goes, they just want exactly what they want. They don't care what the other things are because they don't want them anyway. So a great example of that is this idea, I think, which is imagine if you opened a shoe store that just sold size seven shoes. Like when I walk into a shoe store, let's for the time being assume that people still walked in. Those are women's shoes. Women's size seven. Sure. So... Imagine for a second that you're a woman with, who has a size seven foot. When you walk into a shoe store, are you glad that there are also size 11 shoes and also size eight shoes and also size six shoes? Those are choices. Isn't it nice to have choices? Well, no, that's ridiculous because they're not viable alternatives for you. But people are used to the idea of, 
Well, it'd be nice to have a green pair and a red pair and a purple pair, but guess what? I hate green. I hate purple. I only like red, so I don't really care about those choices either. I just want to walk into a shoe store that has just stuff I want. It's a wild distinction because I feel like the kind of spec printing of clothing, like the industrial clothing manufacturer, the whole concept is that they have to manufacture all of this stuff in the hopes that somebody will buy it. And uh, in order for that to work, they have to kind of play the numbers game. Like, well, most people are about this size, so we're going to make more of this one and not as many people are this size. And, and the reason this is relevant, I think, to us is because we're used to that. We're used to thinking, oh, more choice is good. And uh, creating, as Seth Godin would say, average stuff for average people is the way that you make a big business and that's how you're successful. And, and so I think it's funny to imagine a store where it's only for people with women with size seven feet. That's it. Every shoe you look at everywhere in the store fits you. That would you could be amazing. I can speak as a woman who buys shoes. That would be amazing. It would change the whole experience. And, and maybe like the ant store, it would change the way you set up the retail space. So this is a retail example and it's not exactly what we're talking, you know, we're service people, but the idea that choice is good, I think is, baked into at least in the united states it's kind of baked into our psyche it's baked into the culture like you walk into a supermarket and they're they're like literally 500 kinds of jelly maybe that's not good but the in a service business i think and especially if you're a soloist you don't need to appeal to millions and millions of people in terms of like funding your mission and like making income you don't need that many clients you can have just a, a very small number of clients and and just have a great income, a great living. And if you pick people who you like or that you really feel a desire to help or people, people you just like hanging around with, you know, like, oh, I love dentists. I want to hang around with dentists. As an experiment, one time I was at a conference and I was giving a talk like this, speaking of dentists. And I said, if you were going to specialize, it was a software audience. And I said, if you thought, as for a show of hands, how many people think you'd go out of business if you just specialized in dentists? And a lot of people raise their hands. And I'm like, what if, what if you specialize just in periodontists or some like subcategory? And people are like, no, nah, you'd never be able to. And I did a Google search, dentist near me. From the stage that I was standing on, there were over a thousand dentists within walking distance. Wow, a thousand? I wouldn't have yeah. guessed that high. Yeah, I was in Vegas, but still, it was like, Right. You just can't believe how many people there are. There's <laughs> so many people. And if you're delivering something that is a service or can be delivered over the internet, it's like an info product or it's uh, something you do remotely. Pretty much at least the entire country is your market. At least everyone who speaks your same language is your potential market. It's massive. You can't, you're, it's like your brain, the human brain can't process how huge it is. There are probably 25 dentists just in my neighborhood, which would keep me, you know, if I was doing software development and I got half of them, that would be like a crazy busy year. I feel like I'm arguing with the dear listener because I've talked to so many people about this. They're just like, no, I could never do it. I could never do it. I could never do it. There's not enough people. I'd go out of business. I'm barely getting any leads now. If I focused on even smaller, you know, from everyone down to just dentists or pizza places, then I would definitely 
go out of business. And I'm like, no, the, it's, the, it's counterintuitive, but the exact opposite is true. I was working with a financial advisor and we wanted to remake their website and they really didn't have anybody who was already working there. So I was helping them to find someone and we'd gotten a referral to a firm that turns out they didn't only serve financial advisors, but they had served a lot. This is what I find interesting. Their creative wasn't really as good as other firms. Their technology was brilliant and their questions were fabulous. And we hired them because we felt like they understood the space. The things that they weren't as good at, we could find a way to compensate for that. It made all the difference. And in this particular case, they actually weren't that expensive. They were in a, a, a fairly small local market. I was kind of surprised at how low their fees were. They could have probably doubled them and we would have still hired them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's a value to a client of being able to talk to somebody about your business and, or about your problem. I mean, maybe you're serving you know, big corporates. That person who's reaching out to you to become a client still has problems. They worry about this stuff. And to have somebody that they can trust who understands their problems and how to deal with them, I mean, you just can't underestimate the value of that. So I talk about something called the why conversation a lot, which is when you're first, you first have a sales interview with someone who comes in and they say, hey, uh, we've got this list of stuff that we need done. We understand you do that kind of stuff. Could we talk about hiring you? What's your hourly rate? So on and so forth. And when you when you talk to them, I tell people, you know, try to essentially act as if you're trying to talk them out of hiring you. Act as if you need to be convinced that it's going to be a good fit. Find out what the real business goal is underlying all of this punch list of things that you want you to do. And that's a great a great way to do things. There's a level above it that I don't talk about very much, a way that's even better, which I think only can happen if you are specialized. Uh, on, it doesn't have to be a vertical specialization, but you're specialized on, on solving a very particular kind of problem or for a very particular kind of person, perhaps defined demographically or psychographically or vertical or whatever. But you're hyper-focused and the superior approach is if you can do a cold read on them, which is you don't even have to ask them why, 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 why? You just be, you walk in and you're kind of like in a polite way, you'd be like, okay, so let me guess. You're in a situation like this. You need this. You've had these kinds of problems. You've tried this and this and this before. And now you're talking to me because none of that worked. And they're like, eyes are popping out of their heads. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, exactly. And you're like, mm -hmm. all right, well, here, here are three options for you. Like you can just do it cold right off the top of your head because you work with lots of, let's say, small plastics manufacturers, custom plastics manufacturers in, in Pennsylvania. Like, okay, I know the industry, not as well as the client, but well enough that you can walk in and say, basically say like, I, I already know what your problems are. And that's like, in terms of uh, differentiating yourself from potential alternatives, it's tough to beat that. And there's a boundary line there about letting them tell you what the problems are, but it's the, but being able to do that, I think that is huge. And it feels to the client that feels, it can feel like you're very empathic. It can also feel like you're highly skilled and that they should hire you immediately. And if you put those two things together, it's sort of like right brain, left brain. It pulls them to you. I have a personal experience of this. In fact, when I worked at Staples, my my one corporate job, we had a 
big software initiative uh, coming and my department wanted to make sure that we didn't get left out. Basically, it's complicated and it doesn't matter, but they called in an outside consultant. I think it might have been from Computer Associates or I don't think it was McKinsey, but it was a name consultant. And this guy came in and I had to have a meeting with him. And I was feeling the way that a lot of I'm sure my clients have felt in years since where they sort of outsider comes in, they're never going to get it. I'm kind of like insulted that they brought someone in from the outside. My nose is feeling kind of out of joint, but okay, fine. I'll expose to this person how complicated, how special a snowflake our problems are. And we went into the meeting and within like seven minutes, he totally got it. And I was like, wow, I was completely converted. Like I was ready to be like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Get this guy out of here. But under 10 minutes, he was like, okay, so let me get this straight. Ba, 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 ba. So you're seeing these as a problems. And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> I was like, hire this guy. Get the, we need this guy. It wasn't just that he understood the problem. It was that he understood the problem so fast and he articulated it better than we were even telling it to him. It was one of those like, hey, can I say this back to you? Yeah. And he said it back and we're like, wow, that's even a better way to put it. So we immediately, we trusted him. We were like, well, this, whatever this guy says next is true. <laughs> it's like, yes. 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 The first time that happened to me, I was also in a corporate job, very low level, but we brought in a guy. He did exactly what you just said. And that was the moment that I decided to become a consultant. I was so blown away by him and I was like, I want to do that. I want to come in and know all that stuff and be able to be as smart and helpful as he was. So <laughs> you have the opportunity to, to transform lives, work, all sorts of things if, if you just specialize enough, the right amount. I don't want to imply that there's, it, it always gets smaller, smaller, smaller. It's the right amount of specialty for you and your business. Yeah, so let's talk about that, actually, because there are oodles of examples of service businesses that are clearly not specialized. Like we were talking about ad agencies before we jumped on the call. There's just like no shortage of ad agencies that are just like general purpose agency of record, body shop with a bunch of creatives or like however you want to put it. I'll be talking to some soloist and they'll say, you know, and I'll say specialize and like, what could we specialize in? And they'll be resistant to it and they'll be like, well, but this, and they'll point to some example in their spade, someone that they see as a competitor, but has been around for 20 years and has 200 employees, but they don't specialize. And I'm like, okay, it's true. And what I say to that is, first of all, you're assuming they're successful. Well, let's just say they are. Second of all, you don't know how they got there. Maybe they used to be specialized or maybe it was a slog. And then the last thing I'll say is they're almost like a de facto. There's a certain thing that happens, I think, when you start to have a really impressive stable of clients, which is that other clients are attracted to you because they want to be in that list. So they see themselves as a peer of or aspirationally, they want to be a peer of Nike and Coke and Apple and well, if you did this work, if you work for these companies that we admire, then we're going to uh, trust you. And that's fine. And I think when you specialize, when you start out, I see specializing as focusing down this sort of all of your, your limited resources, focusing it down into a, 
a very, very, like a laser focused point to actually start a fire. And I use the magnifying glass analogy. It's like the sun is never going to automatic, you know, it's highly unlikely that a sunny day is going to catch your kindling on fire. But if you grab a magnifying glass and focus it, it takes 30 seconds. Now, then the question is, okay, if you imagine that the specialization is to get the fire started immediately, and then you can put more and more and larger and larger pieces of wood on there, bigger, 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 bigger audience. Theoretically, over time, you that could be how you build a giant agency and become a, you sort of blur your focus as your client base and your word of mouth and your reputation and your authority is expanding into perhaps adjacent spaces or a the super space, super space, meaning like the space above the one that contains all of the little ones that you've specialized in. But that's a decision for later. The decision for right now is, are you getting any leads? Yeah, like one or two a year or random word of mouth things. And it's like, okay, do you want to do something about that? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. I'm terrified that I don't know why I'm getting any work at all. It's just luck. And that is very uncomfortable because now I have kids and I'm in my 40s and I don't, it's nerve wracking. Okay, here's how you do it. For now, let's imagine a campaign and maybe it's around just one service or one product, but it's for somebody. And let's focus on optimizing it for that somebody people like this and we'll go find people like this and you can reach out to your network and say hey circle of friends and family and colleagues do you know anybody like this i'd like to talk to them to interview them for my podcast or interview them for this book i'm working on or i'd like to talk to them about their industry and and find out or i'd like to run a beta service with them all these things that you can do once you focus down enough so that there's it's something other than, oh, I can do anything for anyone because no one can help you then. No one can recognize it. Yeah, you have to get lucky. Yeah, it's just luck, right? Yeah. And that it, gets scary when the older you get. Well, it's like hope is not a strategy. Luck isn't a strategy either. <laughs> <laughs> a client I'm working with right now gave me a list of their what they see as their competitors. And they were mostly across the country. And it was 20 different agencies, marketing agencies. And I clicked on every single one to see, okay, so who do they think are their competitors? What do they look like? And do you know, by the time I was finished, and I did them all in one sitting because I like to like take it all in at one time, there was only one that marginally stood out. Um, everybody's, their slogans were kind of the same. Their pictures were kind of the same. The clients were kind of the same. And the only one that stood out was one that was a little bit, had a more arresting image and a statement that kind of drew me in, but not one of them, not a single one shared any kind of authority kinds of collateral. There was no blog, there were no articles. I mean, their idea of authority was here are the logos of the clients we've worked with, which by the way, is a good authority tool because those images can be really powerful. But if that's the only thing you're giving your audience, it's, I mean, that for me, it was flat and a disconnect. This is actually a great exercise, dear listener. If you, if you do exactly that, do a Google search that you think a client might do to find someone like you and look at the first two pages of websites that come up. And I'll bet you before you even get to the last one, you're going to be like, this is just like a undifferentiated slurry of chewed up food. It's like, it's just word salad. And you know, they all start to look the same. Nobody stands out. But if one does stand out, why does it stand out? Look at that and see like, what's different about it. 
I'd be willing to bet that either they're the author, author of a book that you're like, oh, I know that book. I, I didn't know they wrote that. Or they have some bold worldview or something where they put themselves at risk. Like there, there's some kind of personality that comes through. Like I'm thinking of, of course, Ramona always comes up in this conversation. But <laughs> you love Ramona. Yeah. But Pia Silva from Worst of All Design. Like first of all, the name, Worst of All Design. And she's one of those sort of badass brand people. And she does a good job of creating, um, I almost said a community. It's not that she's created a community, but she made it clear who she wants to work with. So if, you, if you're like this, then worst of all is a good choice. And it, it comes through in the testimonials because you see, you know, all the pictures are like tattooed people and pierced people doing these sort of like, we make our own knives type of businesses. And it's like, it's a group that you could you either fit in or you don't, but it's a very bold statement. No dentist is going to hire them, right? Unless it's some well, kind of like a, I, no, a dentist might, but not probably oodles and oodles of dentists. With apologies to the cool dentists in the audience. Yes, yeah, so exactly, <laughs> exactly. Maybe there's a space for a badass dentist. Oh, I bet there is. Yeah, it's a web dev shop. They do web stuff, but. You wouldn't, you, you don't get that when you go to her site or another a good example um, that I like to talk about is EtherCycle. It's again, it's a straight up dev shop for like websites, but they focus down on Shopify store owners. So all the messaging on the website is around increasing your sales, recovering shopping carts, and it's all specific to business problems that Shopify store owners have, but it's still a web designer and it's still a web developer and they just do web design and web development stuff. It's just not presented that way. So if you if you did a search for uh, web developers near me or web developers in New York City or whatever, and you go through this list, you're probably by the end of it, you're going to be like, I even I can't tell these apart and I am a web developer. So what does that say? Imagine what a, a sort of um, a client who's kind of on the outside and they sell shoes or pizza or they you know fix people's teeth and they're looking through the same list of stuff like there's no chance. They, their only choice is to get prices and buy the cheapest one because that's the only thing they're going to understand unless you stand out in some way, like, for example, specializing on them in particular. There's a sort of a side piece of this, which is not exactly positioning because I think of positioning as finding that right space based on your message and your business. But sometimes what it is, is that you, for a solo, and sometimes it works for a firm, but more often for a solo, there's something about you, some interest you have or some passion you have that's not directly related to your work, but you share it in some way and you, you incorporate it into your branding. I say branding, not necessarily your work. And just an example I'll give in my own case is I love my dog. I love rescuing animals. I love animals, period. It's buried a little farther down in my site now, but a few years ago, it was across the main nav bar. And I actually had people hire me because of that. Now, don't get me wrong. They wanted all the other stuff, but as they're looking at options, they're like, I'd really like to work with somebody who loves animals or who would rescue a dog or a cat. I mean, it's that side piece you can also build in. And I'm thinking in the example that you mentioned, it's like that tattooed thing. There's nothing about what she does that relates to tattoos, but it's kind of a signal that these are people in your tribe. So you can kind of build that in in a more casual way. It is not niching. 
that is not niching, but you can build it in. You can play with it on social. Jonathan, I was thinking on, on Twitter lately, I've seen a lot of Game of Thrones stuff yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah. It's just a way to play with who you are so that you're a real person, not some drone trying to do business. And now that you mention it, like my undergraduate degrees in music, I was a professional musician for many years, which means I waited on tables, but I was swinging for the fences there for a long time. A lot of my students are also musicians. I, I wonder if there's a, I, I think there is a high percentage of people who develop software who are also musicians, but I, I feel like thinking through it right now, I feel like it's an unusually high percentage of people who I work with are also musicians and it, it gets discussed regularly. You know, we're in Slack room, we're talking about business, but somebody might say, oh, the guitar camp's coming up in New York. If anybody's interested, I'm planning on going. It's like a personal thing that comes up in a business business context. But uh, I, and I think you're right. It's sort of a side thing, but it does relate to the idea of standing out from the crowd of otherwise same looking generic word salad like we solve hard problems with smart people or whatever. Yeah. Well, it's a differentiator. I mean, I'm thinking of the list that we started with I and mean, like there was a, like a chocolate artisan curator or something like that. That could be something that, you know, you don't do as a living, but if that's a passion, why not talk about it? I've got a friend who's a financial advisor who has these amazing wine designations that even sommeliers don't have. And they require 40 hours a week of study along with her day job. And she does, and she just keeps getting them because it's fun to her. I mean, to somebody who wasn't interested, it looks like terrible drudgery. There are clients who really respond to the work that she's doing on the side. She's pulled in clients because of that interest. Yes, right. So you could merge the two. So in, in fact, I have one particular student that is, again, web developer, web dev skills, those, that sort of a skill set. And he's like hyper-focused, but he's super into gaming, loves gaming, uh, loves watching Twitch and all, you know, all that stuff. And so he's specializing down on in that space. And he's like, he's like, this is a dream. <laughs> like, I, right? It's yeah. like amazing. Yeah. Yeah. People are like, oh, well, what what should I niche down on? I'm like, well, what do you love? I'm like, and they'll give an example and we go after that. And sometimes it doesn't work because there's not a great, for example, I'm thinking of one where the, the industry was, if you're familiar with Crossing the Chasm, they were kind of like laggards. So there's like early adopters and then there's two phases that are kind of in the middle, like late adopters and then people who kind of drag their feet. Apologies to Jeffrey Moore. It's a great book. You should read it, Crossing the Chasm. Anyway, the industry that he picked was solidly in the laggard tail. So people who only adopt technology changes, kicking and screaming, they just want things to be the old way, but whatever, their their employees or their clients are dragging them into the future. So they want to spend as little as possible and they don't really want to modernize. And like, here's this guy, he's got a skill set that's very modern. He just couldn't find his way in, in a way that allowed him to use his superpower and build the build things the way you wanted to build them for this particular market. So point being, I'm not saying it always works out, but why not start there? Like, what if you accidentally make the job of your dreams? Like, wouldn't that be super cool? Combine your interests and your talents into a going concern. Like, wouldn't that be so cool? So, so here's a way, a little exercise to get closer to that. So what you want to do is write down I'd say five to 10 projects. You really typically don't need more than 10. 
And they could be maybe the last projects that you did. And if you're coming out of corporate, think of the work you did there as projects. And just like summarize each of the projects in, I don't know, four or five sentences tops. Okay, so you've got this list. And then, you know, if you want to be analytical about it, you can go through and rank them. But what you want to do is find the projects when you look at this list and say, what are the ones that I don't ever want to do again, that I would run screaming in the opposite direction if it happened, and then try to figure out why. Like, why was that such a screamer? And then you do the same thing on the other end. What are the projects that I loved? And you might say, oh, well, there was this one and it it was challenging, but in a good way. And what I loved about it was the team. I loved the role that I had. Dig into what you like and don't like about each of those. And if you do that, typically it only takes about five projects before you see the, the threads, but if not, you know, try 10 if you've done a lot of different things and look at it critically, almost like it's someone else and say, okay, well, what do I want to do more of? Where am I at my best? What aspects of those projects can I repeat? And sometimes you'll find the answer in there, at least the, the, the first glimmer of the specialty. Because you think about, these are the people I want to work with. These are the kinds of people I want to work with. I want to work in a team. I want to be solo. I want to be like the king of the mountain expert. I want to be collaborative with a group. And you start to pull out those aspects of your preferences, your passions, kind of what I call your personal genius. And when you do that, that will give you a big old neon clue when you start thinking about how to niche. That's great advice. Another one that I use that I think it's been helpful for me is imagine that whoever you pick, you're going to be hanging out, like you're going to be going to conference. Maybe you will, maybe you won't in reality, but imagine that you're going to be going to conference after conference after conference with these people and you're going to be associating with them. And this is a broad brush because everyone's different, but certain industries attract certain types. So would you want to go to like a conference in LA for people in the movie industry. Would that be fun? Or would that, would that just, would you feel like an outsider and you'd feel like uh, real super weird and you'd rather go to like, I don't know, like a finance conference or a statistics conference or like a data visualization conference, where are you most comfortable? And I like the word you use neon clue. So like, what are the clues? It's kind of like a self exploration exercise in a, in a, in a lot of ways, it's like, well, what do I like, (laughs) you know? And a lot of people I talk to are just so, they feel so, the first thought is always about money. Like, even though they're doing well, they're still like, well, I don't know where my next lead is going to come from. I've got three kids going to be in college in the next two years and I'm nervous about money. So they want, so all the decisions are like money based and I totally get that, but it doesn't give you any clues. Look, if you want to do something, we need to decide what to do. So like, what do you want to achieve? Like we need some clues about what's your objective. We need to pick a strategy that's going to suit the person and their goals. Then we can start picking tactics. But if it's just like, I need more money that doesn't give you any clues. It's like a goal that you can set. Like I need, you know, I want to have like whatever a million bucks in the bank, but there's no, it's just not useful. It's not a useful goal. Cause it doesn't, as I always say, well, just open a chain of laundromats. Like what? Why even bother with this, like, everybody understands a laundromat, just do that. Well, no, I don't want to do that. I was like, oh, okay, why not? Well, because I like doing this. All right, let's talk more about that. What do you like about it? 
who do you like to help with that? Oh, anybody. Well, yeah, but is there anybody you wouldn't work with? Well, yeah. And then list people that they consider horrible. I'm like, okay, well, let's flip that around. Who would you love to help if you could choose? And start to get some kind of a picture because at the end of the day, you have to be like, all right, start connecting with these people. Well, you know, or start connecting with people like this. And it's like, well, if you don't know what people like this is, it's really hard to have any actions to take. And then you're back to hope and luck. We use the word audience a little bit loosely, but to me, it's not just about somebody who's going to read your blog or listen to a podcast, but it's the, it's who do you want your message to reach and to resonate with? And then the flip side, which is equally important, sometimes people have to start there, is who do you not want your message to resonate with? I mean, I've had clients where we started with somebody who was in a really bad place and they're like, I need to get all these people out of my worldview, I'm like, okay, well, let's stop talking to them because what you're saying to, right now is attracting them. So let's try something different. Who do you want to attract? And you go through that process. Money is important in the sense that you want to have a target. You want to have a goal, but by itself, I'm with you. It's, it's meaningless. You can make a million dollars a lot of different ways. You can make a hundred thousand dollars a lot of different ways. I always use the money as sort of a a sign to tell me how prepared somebody is to make a risk. So if somebody's making $100,000 now and they're kind of just gotten to that point and they're feeling good about it and they're like, well, I think I could make a half a million. I'm like, okay, so what are you willing to do differently, right? Because to just multiply your income by five, it's not just doing more of what you're doing because you don't have enough time to do that. So what are you willing to commit to that's not going to make any money right now while you're working on it so that you can leverage it in the future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was just about to say, like, it's like the Todd episode. There's a certain point and it's right around for my industry. It's right around $150,000 to $200,000 of gross revenue. If you want to get past that, you can't do it without leverage. You can do it with value pricing, but it's pretty hard. You, you need to do something. You have to change what you do. It's like, if you want things to be better, well, better is a change. You have to change something if you want things to be better. It's like, well, I want things to be better, but I don't want to change anything. Yes. It's like, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and it's like someone sprinkles some magic dust on me and I can keep doing what I'm doing, but now I'm making five times more than I was. Like, no, you have to like make changes and like, well, okay, but I don't want to change anything. I don't want to change. <laughs> well, and you take risks. And, you know, if, if in your example where you've got somebody at 150, 200, they're on the hamster wheel. So for them to get off the hamster wheel for a little bit, they're probably going to have to reduce their income for a while unless there's some lucky magic thing that happens. So if they decided to spend a day a week for three months working on a, a, a new course, guess what? You're not going to be making much money on that day that you're writing the course, but it's, it's the price you pay to develop your content. And of course, you know, you choose those, those investments very carefully. I mean, you don't just suddenly say, Oh, I think I'll do a course today. So you, you make those, but you can't, you just can't get to a different place without doing something different. If somebody tells you that they're lying. <laughs> So to, yes, that's this stuff we've talked about. I'm like episode titles are popping into my head. Uh, <laughs> things about like, should I write a book is one, you know, cause we talked about like, are you ready to write the book? You know, do you have building your product ladder down from the top versus up to the bottom? Like we've talked about all these things, go back and listen to those, but to pull it back to the topic here, one of the things you can do is specialize like crazy. And if that triggers the fear reflex in you, then 
Something that's been successful for me with folks is to uh, de-risk it in two ways. One is imagine that it's just a campaign. Not It's not a bet the business forever thing that you're going to get a neck tech tattoo that says I only help dentists. It's just a campaign that you're going to run for three to six months and you're going to test the market. You're going to see, see what happens. And if, if it feels less permanent, I find people are a little bit more willing to experiment with it. It feels less risky. And the other thing is you can think of it as just uh, you're going to niche down for a particular product or service. So instead of imagining that you're going to pigeonhole your entire business forever and ever, amen, around this new value proposition like uh, I help dentists increase their monthly income or their you know per seat income, Okay, we're not going to bet the business on that, but let's create a product that's specifically for dentists in this example, and it's going to do a specific thing, create a productized service. This is for dentists, and go out and do all the marketing stuff around that for the dentist for three to six months. Like, it's a campaign to sell this particular product. And it'll either won't work, for whatever reason, because it doesn't always work, or it will work. And when it does work, my experience is that people are like, this is great, because now they know what to do. Like before, when it's just luck and hope that they're just like, I feel like I should be doing something. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to do more client work. And okay, then you're on the hamster wheel. Once you realize that there are controls on the dashboard in front of you and you can turn them and it has an effect, you're like, whoa, I'm never going back to that old way. And then before you know it, you know, this is having a plenty of friends of mine and students too. It's like, my whole business becomes this one product that I ran this campaign for for three to six months. And then they create another product because they're working with just dentists or whoever. And they're like, oh, there's another opportunity that's even bigger than the first one I saw. They're pulled by their success into this new space. And then it just compounds because they're getting deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. And they're differentiated more and more from the generalists at the surface. And anyway, it, it becomes a virtuous cycle. Yeah. And it's, it's all a bit about taking that first risk and paying attention. And, and to your point, it doesn't always work, but guess what? If it doesn't work, there is still something that will. So then you try the second thing. You don't have to bet the business on every single change. My message to people is like, even if this doesn't work, you'll learn the process for testing a hypothesis. So here's the hypothesis. We think that there's this kind of expensive problem in this that people like this have, whether it's environmentalists or it's green businesses or it's dentists or it's chain restaurants, whatever it is, it could be anything. But we think people like this have this kind of a symptom that they're experiencing. They're experiencing this kind of pain. And I believe that I have skills that can address that pain. And I believe that I can reach these people. So let me just see and go out and try that. And even if it doesn't work, you're like, okay, I understand this process now. I'm going to come up with a different hypothesis. Or along the way, I stumbled on one that just like hit me in the face. Oh, wow, this one would be way better. Now that I'm thinking like this, I'm seeing them everywhere. And like, wow, there's a much bigger one over here. So, you know, it depends on how opportunistic you want to be. Depends on how idealistic you want to be. But you can follow this process over and over to find expensive problems and create solutions for them and leverage your expertise, package it up in different ways so that you're off the certainly off the time clock uh, and hopefully creating a whole ladder of products and services that leverage your your time and your systems all of those things to increase your impact and uh make you more money more easily well soapbox soapbox (laughs) done 
was thinking, summary of episode done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting to go on such a rant on this topic, but I get a lot of pushback from some people. So there's a vocal minority of people who push back really hard on the idea of specialization. Specialization is for insects. It's not for humans. You know, like all, all these things. Like you can't innovate if you're a specialist. And I suppose there's an argument to be made, but if you just look at it as starting the fire so that you're not operating on luck and hope, now you've got a fire going and then you can decide what to do later. But let's just get the fire going, understand whatever. I'm about to go back down the rabbit holes. <laughs> well, I think there. it's it's that, you know, you don't have to label it. I mean, I, I keep thinking of the ant store. I mean, I am fascinated by that. Now there is a guy who has found his passion and who knows how he got there. But if you just take one step, one step into something that isn't just luck and hope, then you start on the path and it's nobody gets it Almost nobody gets it like the first time out. This is a process. And so, you know, you just start. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go all day. Yeah. So <laughs> you should start. We should stop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good idea. Good advice. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I guess that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us for next week's rant. <laughs> <Saturday>. Not. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. Bye-bye.